Hello, you are listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Arye Lightstone. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2. You can listen to us on NachumSiegel.com. We are very proud to be sponsored once again by our dearest friends at Adorama Camera, much more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. This show is actually bringing us back to our very, very roots uh, with Tech Talk, as those of you who have been listening to us assiduously uh, throughout our, I don't know, 28, 29 episodes or whatever it is that we've been having, uh, know that we have tried our hardest to make sure that there is a connection in between technology, investment, entrepreneurship, and Israel, and sort of that bridge in between Israel and America, or Israel here and wherever it is that you're listening throughout the world. And we actually have a really cool opportunity as we're coming back to our roots, really to look at this show and its purpose from a completely and totally different perspective than we have. And in order to do that, we have a special guest with us today. His name is Andy Kark. Andy is a CPA, a PFS, a CFP. I knew what the first one of those were. I didn't know what the other two were, but you're going to be informed with us as we can. But welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. I guess, uh, you know, to walk us through very, very briefly so our audience knows your qualifications before we get to Israel Investment Advisors and the Israel Investment Fund and all of those things that you're going to walk us through. Tell us, we, we know what a CPA is. Tell us what a PFS is and a CF, CFP, please. Uh, sure, sure. A, C, a PFS is a special de- designation uh, that's given by the AICPA, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, to people who have a, uh, a specialty in financial planning and financial services. So that's the PFS. Okay. The CFP is a, stands for Certified Financial Planner. Um, again, it's a designation for those people who are in the investment uh, investment advice and financial planning background or uh, field. And this is actually something while you've studied very hard and earned your professional bona fides, to the best of my knowledge, it's a little bit of a family uh, history also in financial planning and CPA, etc. Correct, correct. My father's a CPA. His uh, two of his brother, his brother-in-law are CPAs. His cousins are CPAs. My sister's a CPA, and, and the list goes on. So it's sort of like you get born and you get like the initials. Exactly. exactly. Okay. I was born with it. Right. There you go. Almost like a Manning in football. But uh, <laughs> it happens to be an apropos uh, joke here. We're actually recording live from Denver, Colorado. Um, home of the Karks in the world of CPA and the Mannings in the world of football. Uh, But we are pleased because to be able to have on somebody with a reputation not only for excellence in financial planning, but also integrity in the world of business. Uh, For those of you who are listening in the tri-state area, uh, know that it is common to run into other people who are Jewish, religious, practicing, etc., etc., when one leaves sort of the friendly bubble of the tri-state area and a couple other places around the world, uh, it, it's a rarity to run into people who uh, who they are known not only as as experts in the business world, but also as uh, pun- punctilious in their observance and, and really representing the Jewish world um, in a way that uh, you might be the only person that, uh, that uh, somebody in Denver runs into certainly that day, week, or maybe even year uh, who happens to be an observant Jew. So it's uh, the, maybe we'll talk about that at the end. I know that isn't why I asked you to come onto the show, so I just sort of threw you for a loop, loop over there. But uh, anyways, for for our, the people listening, I think you should know we are broadcasting live from Denver. We are excited to be able to have uh, Andy on. Um, so Andy, we're here really to talk mostly about the Israel Investment Advisors. Uh, can you tell us how that started? Sure, sure. No, it's great. Um, <clears throat> so it actually started with a, a friend of mine who's in the same business as I am. Um, and we were on a trip to Israel in 2008. And uh, he, he, like myself, we, we were talking about the, the opportunities that there are in Israel and the Israeli markets, etc. Um, and we just, we're, we're technically actually competitors, um, but, but we're very close friends as well. And um, we just thought this would be kind of something, this, we're, we're both passionate Zionists, um, and we thought this would be kind of a neat thing to do. Nobody was really doing it. Um, there, there's investment in Israel, but nobody's doing an actively managed 
uh, fund out there. There's indexes. There's a three or four index funds, all very small. Um, there's lots of venture capital out there. But but Israel, people don't realize, but Israel's got the real. Uh, I mean, there's real there's real companies there that make money, that have balance sheets that are profitable. Um, there's discounts because of the fear factor. Um, so a, a, a like kind company in the United States may trade at 12 or 13 or 14 times earnings. The exact same company because it's headquartered in Israel, maybe the clients aren't even in Israel or their customers aren't even in Israel, would, would trade at a significant discount to that. So we're, we're trying to take advantage of that and, 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 and share with people that there's more to investing in Israel besides Israel bonds. And there's, there's, much, more, there's much better ways to make money in Israel but, uh, besides the traditional ways that we know. So, Andy, first of all, again, thank you. For those that sometimes we get too far into the show and, and people are wanting to know the guests and they want to follow along sort of online. Uh, so, first of all, go to is Israel, excuse me, IsraelInvestmentAdvisors.com. IsraelInvestmentAdvisors.com. You can see what Andy's built. It's very exciting. Um, Andy, along with his partner, um, and partners, what the, partners, pardon me, his partners and what they've been able to create. And just to walk you through for a moment, we spend a lot of time on our show talking to VCs, talking to, um, you know, founders of, of various different startups. Very few of them generate any revenue. I don't know if they know what a balance sheet is necessarily. And we spend a lot of time sort of reverse explaining to our audience why in the world WhatsApp would be bought at whatever it's bought at. Or, you know, the technology that are used in order for missile defense, how that gets uh, sold for companies looking to plan out a virtual reality furniture in your room. You're not talking about this. Not at You're all. You're talking about a whole different range of Israel economy. So how'd you find that and why are you excited sure, about it? Sure, sure. This is, this is really the, the bread and butter of, 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 of the Israel economy. Um, my, my partner, Brian Friedman, was, a, uh, was an emerging markets analyst years ago uh, at a fund here called Janus and always had an interest in, in the emerging markets and Israel, obviously, be, being a passionate uh, Zionist, uh, you know, piqued his attention. Um, it's kind of what we do. We, we look when we, when we make investments for on behalf of our clients, whether it's mutual funds or in equities, we're, we're looking at exactly those same types of things. Uh, companies that make money, companies that have balance sheets. Um, it's it's I don't want to say it's boring uh, because there's real value there. We're value investors, and you look around the the, the the world, and really the best performing stock market over the last 20, 30 years is Israel. Believe well, one second. The, the, the... 20, 30 years, the Israeli stock market is one of the best performing markets? Over long periods of time, yes, yes, yes. I'll show you on our website in a second. Okay, if you're following along at home, remember we're at IsraelInvestmentAdvisors.com. We're here listening to Andy Kark live from Denver, Colorado. The, the, the issue is, though, the, the, the Israeli markets the Israeli markets are... Um, are um, it, it, the, the the volume because it's a small market mm -hmm. the, the volume doesn't get a lot of attention sure and so people people don't realize that but but um, but it's been really one of the best places you could be long you know since 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 the markets there began you know so before we get into maybe the particulars of that you know going to the first three letters that follow your name which are CPA can you explain because I think some people might already be shutting off that part of their mind that says this isn't for me. I'm not. I'm nervous about what the tax ramifications would be. How do I invest in the Israeli market? And what does that mean to me as an American or North American? Can you walk through how the investment structure works as an American? Sure. Sure. The companies that we're buying, most of them are dual listed. Okay. Um, so, so you can buy them in New York, you buy them in Tel Aviv, whatnot. Um, the, the way our fund works is is there is you know our, our, we have a limited uh, it's a limited partnership structure um, so people make an investment in the limited partnership limited partnership takes care of whatever tax ramifications at the at the partnership level and the investor gets a K one uh, from there so so it's not something that the person who's investing has to worry about oh my god. How am I going to deal with the taxes? That's really handled at the limited partnership level. And was the, the mechanism of creating limited partnerships sort of to be able to take away some of those boundaries that you might have as a regular guy wanting to put X number of dollars into a foreign market? I would like to tell you that's the case, but Thank that's you. not really the case. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the structure is really it's, – it's this is a um, – it's a hedge fund, it's, but hedge funds mean lots of different things. Sure. Uh, the reason we did this structure is because we're, we're now four years in, in, in the making, but, but uh, when you start up an investment pool like this, 
the regulatory burden of mm-hmm. doing something much larger, whether it's a 500-person uh, fund or a mutual fund that everybody's familiar with, the regulatory costs and burdens are, are tremendous. Uh, the SEC allows you to do to have 99 accredited investors. Just for the audience that's out there, remind us what accredited normally sure. means. Accredited investors is a, so you have to have a certain amount of net worth and or a certain net income. Okay. Okay. Um, but that's but that, that's the SEC rules. Basically, it says. Ironically enough, for Yeshiva Day School paying uh, parents, it's a possibility that the net income might be there, while the net worth might not be. Right, that's right. A and you can qualify yeah. on one or the other. Okay. So it's, it's an income level or a, or a net worth level. Sure. Uh, but the idea behind it is that the SEC says that you know your your significant uh, net worth or make enough money, you're sophisticated enough that you can handle the risks associated with it. So so the regulation that that they put over us is not as strict as, as, sure. as, as the other you know, mutual funds or whatnot. That's really the reason for the structure. Got it. But, but the structure is nice, is that it's just a K-1 and, and that's it and, and so forth. And it's pretty simple. And, and many people out there listening are familiar with what it's like to get a K-1 and how to react to that appropriately. So that's, it's, it's not a scary new type of form that one's going to no. have to get used to doing. Right. It's not going to change their tax bracket that they're in or right. you know, any of those right. types of filings. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Now, how... What, so you guys were in Israel. Uh, now you came up with the so idea. We up, <coughs> right. You know what we said, listen, we, we do investments. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. Israel is a great place to invest. Nobody's really doing it. There's some people doing it in, in index funds, but they're small. Um, the, the, we, for example, the, 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 federa- the, the global, if you look at the federations of the country, the mm-hmm. U.S., North America, the, the endowment dollars in the global JFNA, you know, Jewish federations of North America, sure. uh, endowments represent about a little bit more than $50 billion in endowment money. The Jewish federations of North America represent $50 billion of endowment money? The, the, okay. the endowment money is actually north of there. That's what it was about a year okay. ago. I don't know what it is today, but about a year ago, it sure. represented over $50 billion. Over $50 billion. That's a lot of money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I take that back. Not just the J, not just the Jewish federations of North America. Uh, those, the, the, all Jewish endowments. Got it. I'm sorry. I okay, the endowment that. world the endow- of Jewish organizations. The endowment world of Jewish organizations represented over 50, was over $50 billion okay. in Jewish, Got North it. American Jewish Foundation money. Got Correct. it. Correct. I'm sorry. No worries. Um, of that mm-hmm. $50 billion, less than 1% is invested in Israel. Wow. Which means that probably more, there's probably more investment indirectly via index funds in Arab countries uh-huh. by these Jewish foundations than there is in Israel. Wow. And of the investment that's in Israel, the teeny bit, much of it's in Israel bonds. Oh, gosh. So, not necessarily known to be high performing. A nice, a nice idea, but nice not necessarily idea. for <laughs> the purpose of endowing. Oh, gosh. Okay. Right. So we're, we're trying to change that mindset. Sure. Um, and and um, there's been a few attempts. Uh, there the, the blue and white fund that went out of business. There's a, there's a couple of index funds that are still active, but it's it doesn't really exist. And that's because the market cap of Israel is so small that, they're, they're, like I said to you earlier, a J.P. Morgan or Morgan Stanley is not going to start up an Israel fund unless they can get a half a billion to a billion dollars in it. And to actively manage in, in Israel and to actively manage. A proper portfolio in Israeli stocks, you can't do it with more than fifty, sixty million dollars in the fund. Right. Um, so, so you, while the while the market itself may be an attractive one because of its size, it keeps out a lot of the big players. Big players. Right. And and what Israel needs is so it's a it's a kind of a dichotomy the chicken and an egg right? right Israel needs foreign investment we got the the B, BDS what is it BDS sure. action going on and and the the other thing that had nothing to do with BDS that was a real killer to Israel it was in 2010 really when we launched our fund um, in July of 2010 the the uh, Israel came out of the emerging markets index because okay. their per capita uh, earnings per capita, whatever, was great enough to qualify them to be to obtain developed market status. They emerged they, from the mar- emerging market. They emerged from the emerging market. So okay. what happens when they emerge from the emerging markets? All those people who had, who were in the emerging markets index, uh-huh. all those managers had to sell 
Israel. So there's a massive flow of capital out of Israel in June, July of 2010. So punished for their success. Punished for their success. We launched ours right after that. Partially to try to rebuild that. Sure. Uh, and that's the idea. And that's so Israel still needs that capital. They had a massive outflow, not due to the BDS movement, but, but to, to just their success. Right. And and it needs capital. And 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 that's there's no better way of. I, I tell people this: if you want to part, people talk about oh, well, we partner with this, and I'm not knocking charities, but when you partner with this charity, that means I give the money to the charity and right. I spend it and do whatever, and I feel good. Right. I guess that's my partnership. When I when I make an investment in a company. Mm-hmm. I'm a partner in that company, and I buy that stock. If they have success, I have success. Right. If they have failure, I have failure. Right. But that's that's a real definition of partnership. Is what we're doing is really partnering. Sure. You know. And, well, and 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 you would know as a as a listener of our show that we are major proponents of the anti BDS world. We have given tremendous kudos to Scarlett Johansson, amongst many others, who have stood up to um, ridiculous pressure coming from absolutely nowhere. Um, you know, you, you just begin to doubt sort of any credibility in the rest of the world. I believe Venezuela was just chosen to the uh, Human Rights Council, I think, uh, yes, in, yes. In, in in the UN and and to uh, chair it, I think. yeah, to, oh, to chair it. Oh, even better. Good. Yes, okay, yes. so this is truly what that which is up is really down, and that which is down maybe would be better off if it stayed down. But uh, but you know, one of the things that we've heard from we've had John Medved on from our crowd in the past, and and a couple of sort of the VC worlds, and we're gonna pivot into why I'm, I'm really excited about what you're telling our audience about, is that the best way to counter BDS is invest in Israel. And to me, I'd have to tell you I'm a little bit disappointed with the chief investment officers at the endowment uh, of many of those charities for not having looked at this in a serious way. And we're, we're going to talk about how to circle back to that. I do want to remind our audience that you're listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Arya Lightstone, Episode 3, Season 2. You can listen to us on NachumSiegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera. More than just a camera store, please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. Sitting here this Wonderful day talking to Andy Kark of the Israel Investment Advisors, which has the Israel Investment Fund. Andy is in addition to being a wonderful person, a stalwart of the Denver Jewish and global community. He is a CPA, a PFS. We learned what that was, a CFP. And uh, and frankly, I forgot what that was already. So we're going to look back in the archives and have a chance to ring back on that. But you know, Andy, we oftentimes have people come on and say, look, invest in this virtual reality or this person who's going to be able to walk again or all sort of these sort of VC. Sure. I don't know what the percentage is. I think they say if you hit one out of 10, you're doing pretty well. One out of 20. One out of 20, one you're doing pretty well. But you got to hit that one. And if you only invest in 19, right, and, and you miss that one. one. Right. <laughs> so to me, there's something that says I've got security, but I've got growth. And not only do I have security and growth, but I have an opportunity for a real return on my money in a place that I care about. Right. The, exactly. We call it the double bottom line. Okay. Why do we say double bottom line? It's it's you're doing two things. You're 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 benefiting yourself, which is good for your bottom line. Sure. But you're also bene- you're also doing what's right. You're doing what's right for the Jewish people. You're doing what's right for Israel. The only I tell people this: the only thing that should hold you back is if you truly don't believe that Israel is going to be around. Mm-hmm. You really think that they, you know, God forbid, that Iran was going to wipe them off the earth. And you don't want to be around for that. Fine, don't invest. My my response to that is, if Israel's wiped off the, the face of the earth, the U.S. stock market's going to have more than just a bad day. Right. The, the whole world's going to have more than just a bad day. Right. So I don't, I don't think it's really going to matter. Right. I, I really don't think so. And, Your investment strategy at that point in time probably matters less versus right. the existential right. crisis. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So I don't. I don't. But I understand people's emotions. Okay. And I understand that. But but there there's real. Like, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, you, you can buy company A in America and it's 15 times earnings and you can buy the same company doing the exact same thing with the same customers in Israel and straight in at 10 times earnings or 7 times earnings. Um, you know, the dividend yields of our portfolio, you know, it, 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 I can't really talk about too much, but, sure. but, but, you know, significantly higher than what you'd have in equivalent uh, portfolios here. Um, 
and and like I said, everything we invest in has is is solid. It's a balance sheet. It's we, there is there's wonderful startup stuff in Israel. I'm not knocking it at all. Sure. But it is that. It is startup stuff. Right. And and there's a whole world out there of real solid performing equities that, like I said, benefit your pocketbook and benefit the Israeli economy. And that's really what Israel needs. Israel needs foreign investment. After the they came out of the emerging markets index, the only people who are going to put money into Israel. Are, are the pro-Israel community, Jews and religious Christians that, that are pro-Israel. That's who's going to have to do this, and that's what we're going to rely on. So good. So to... you segued to my next question. Anyways, <laughs> you know, Denver has a pool of investors, um, not particularly noted as a wide Jewish community in terms of investment. So the second question is, have you found luck in the non-Jewish community in terms of being interested in this? Yeah, we definitely have. Um, the way the fund works is, is like I said earlier, it's uh, we're limited mm-hmm. to, to 99 investors sure. uh, in our fund and accredited investors, and so we have we have some minimums in our fund. Um, and while we have a lot of interest from the non-Jewish world, uh, we, we do have a, we do have a couple of people in our fund that are not Jewish that are religious Zionist Christians. Sure. Um, there's a lot more that would like to come in, but they're not accredited, and/or the investment minimums are too high for them. Uh-huh. Uh, so it takes it takes the right it takes the right. Could you take an endowment? Would an endowment absolutely. qualify? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So there are people out there. Look, many of you listening uh, not only have participated in endowments. I'm sure we've got one or two chief investment officers who tune in <laughs> to see about the latest technology and entrepreneurship coming out of Israel and America, uh, I'm going to again recommend that you reach out to Andy Kark. You can find his information at israelinvestmentadvisors.com. Uh, to me, it seems to be a pity uh, if your endowment is not currently there, if you're giving to an endowment and you don't know whether they've invested uh, in Israel and they're able to reach the same, if not higher, returns as a traditional endowment, um, to me, it seems that you can get $2 for your dollar that you're investing in, in the way that both your heart and your mind could be satisfied with. So I would strongly encourage you uh, to reach out to uh, to Andy Kark there at IsraelInvestmentAdvisors.com. Additionally, um, so we've got that you, you define the fund as being actively managed. Right. Would you define that for our listeners? Sure, sure. Uh, the difference between active and passive, those mm-hmm. are really the two types that you talk about. Passive investment is basically you buy the index, sure. uh, whether it's the Tel Aviv 100 or whatever. There's, a, there's a, another fund out there called the Blue Star Index, a great fund. Uh, Steve Schoenfeld runs that, a great guy. Um, basically, you, you just you just buy the – you're basically buying all the stocks. Like the that, S&P or like the – Like the S&P, the... exactly. Got it. The, the difference, the problem that we see mm-hmm. – and last year was a perfect example – um, the Israeli market is dominated thir- uh, about 35%. When you buy the Israeli market index, which sure. is passive investment, about 35% of that market is comprised of three stocks, Teva, Israeli Chemicals, and um, I forget the third one. Um, and a third significant stock third of that right, size. Right, okay. right. but, 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 but you have – so you have this highly, highly dominated – uh, so when you buy you buy a dollar of the index, you're mm-hmm. really buying three stocks is comprising 35% of it. Sure. Um, and, and so forth. So what we say is, hey, if you don't want to just buy those three stocks, there's a lot of good companies out there, smaller ones, medium sized, all different kinds. Mm-hmm. What actively management what active management means is that we go and we look at the companies that are listed on the stock, these uh, Israeli companies look that are listed, and we research them, we do our due diligence. And we decide what companies we want to buy and in what sectors and how much of those. And so we create our own pick. We have about 30, 35 names in our portfolio. No position represents more than uh, – no more than really 5% sure. of, our, of, our, of our fund. Um, and we, we track them and we monitor them. And so we can decide what stocks we want to own or buy. That's the that Active is I'm buying and selling stocks that I want to buy and sell. Mm-hmm. Passive is I'm just buying the index and whatever the index does, I do. So this may seem like a completely ignorant question because I'm not really familiar with this component of investment. Is, is, let's, let's drill down to Israel, for example. Would there be a moment, say, during this past um, – war operation where that would be the time to be getting out of the hospitality industry specifically there and getting into the 
I don't know, uh, armament industry? Is, is that the type of active, and does that even exist? I don't even know if those are companies sure. that exist on the exchange. Right. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, our approach, we are long-term investors. Sure. If we like a company and we like what they're doing, um, we're, we stick with them. When, when things change, when we think they get overvalued or, or the price gets out of whack with what we think the underlying value is, we sell. Um, we've been through, our fund has now been through two wars. Okay. And the, the results are always the same. Um, market sells off, the market comes back. Um, and and so we actually use the wars. Uh, if we have cash, we use the wars as a little bit of a buying opportunity. Okay. Because history has shown us that, you know, it just it's, it's pretty simple. It's always It always happens that way. Right. Um, so when we do, like I said, we, we'll, we'll take advantage of that. But we don't we don't jump in and out too much. I mean, there are people that do inactive management. They will mm-hmm. jump in and jump out and this and that. We don't. Generally, we have a pretty low portfolio turnover. Uh, maybe, maybe... Five to fifteen percent a year okay. in terms of turnover. Um, we do a pretty good job figuring out what we want to buy and stay on top of it. And again, like I said, unless something changes within the company or or uh, or some other other factors that happen. But generally, wars are those types of things we don't get too worked up over. Um, Israel doesn't stay in these prolonged wars very long. Right, and tend to bounce back. So let me throw out two different ideas. I'm going to throw them <laughs> both at you because I don't know which order you necessarily want to answer them in. What do you think the underlying factors are for the state of Israel that allows, you know, it's 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 a, it's a developed economy, but it's not large enough to really attract the big players. But it's it's flying, like you said, overperforming or at least performing as well as the other major markets over the long term. Mm-hmm. What is it about Israel that you think enables that to happen? And if you were able to to put on your emerging market hat again, you and your partners. Is there another place in the world that you see has at least some of the recipes, uh, probably recipes is the wrong word, ingredients that Israel had? Is what Israel has created, is that truly a unique phenomenon? You know, I think, I, Warren, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, if, if, you're, you know, if you're looking for, uh, I don't remember, if you're looking for oil or something, whatever, you can go all, all over the world. But if you're looking for brains, you don't have to go look any further than Israel. And I really think it's that. I think it's the brain power that Israel has, the innovation that Israel has, um, that makes it what it is. Uh, I mean, Israel's a light to the nation, right? Mm-hmm. It, it really is in, in so many ways. Um, and so I think that that's, I think, is there another country similar to it? I'm, I'm not sure there really is. I, I don't, you know, especially gone through what they've gone through and, and able to maintain what they've been able to maintain. I, I don't think there is anything else out there like that. Um, you know, and, and the, the spirit, the... You know, there's the, the the book Startup Nation, which talks a lot about the start, which are it's, sure. it's great, it's fantastic. It was it's our first marketing piece. Okay, yeah, perfect. <laughs> I think it's been a lot of people's first marketing you know, piece, frankly. It's, yeah, it's a, you know, and I think it spells it out beautifully in that book. Right. You know, why is it successful? You know, it's the chutzpah, it's the it's the drive, it's the you know, it's the, the brain power that, that, that the Jewish people have. So in, in the couple minutes that we have left, and I want to remind everybody that, uh, that Andy Kark has been gracious enough to join us from the Israel Investment Advisors, um, and uh, has within the Israel Investment Advisors has the Israel Investment Fund, and it's been very exciting to have him on the show. Um, so thank you, Andy. The second piece is, can you speak, please, to us about the concept of when I invest you know, I think I've shared the story before on uh, on uh, this show that I've invested. I think my my grandmother gave me stock in Coca Cola when I was nine, and that was pretty exciting. But but what did Coca Cola get from that? Like, did Atlanta is Atlanta a better city because I own shares in Coca Cola? What what is my fifty thousand, hundred thousand, five hundred thousand that I'm able to invest in the Israeli markets, the formal markets? How does that translate into the Israeli economy as opposed to, yeah, if I've got 50 grand or I've got 500 grand, go give it to 10 different startups and I know there will be 10 little groups that might turn into a billion dollars. How how does that work? I just don't know. Sure. So a company, um, Rami Levy, it's a name in our portfolio. It's a grocery store chain in Israel. You know, as as money comes into the company, as stock prices go up, what happens? Expansion. Um, New jobs are created in Israel. New Mm -hmm. buildings are built in Israel, um, you know, more people have more things. I mean, it's a direct impact. It's a direct impact on the Israeli economy, much more so than Israel bonds, which mm-hmm. is really backing is And again, not knocking. It's a nice bonds, thing to do, but it's not. But yeah. It's a nice thing to do. It's helping the Israeli government borrow money cheaply. Sure, is what it is. Um, but but 
making investment, equity investment is is helping. You're helping Israeli companies. When Israeli companies do well, people do well. More jobs are created. More people make more money. It's a cycle. It's a you know the the economy does well. So when I'm investing, it's not that I'm boosting necessarily the value of the shareholders wherever they might be, but the company itself benefits from the increased Absolutely. value of the shares. Absolutely. And that money gets plugged. These are companies that are based in Israel. That maybe all their customers aren't in Israel, but there's an infrastructure in Israel. They employ in Israel. Right. Headquartered. Our our parameters of our fund. Sure. Just so you're aware, our Please. our, our the, the, the the mandates are Israeli headquartered companies. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, there's some that may have most of their assets outside of Israel, but their headquarters are in Israel, or outside companies that have at least a majority of their assets in Israel. And in our, and currently, we have one name in mm-hmm. the portfolio that's not an Israeli company, but it's Noble Energy. Uh, but that's because of the gas fines. We, sure. Our feeling is is once they book the real value of those fines, more than 51% of their assets will be based in Israel. Are they in Oklahoma? Where uh, are they? They're in, I think they're in uh, Texas. Texas, okay. Yeah, they're in Texas. So Noble Energy is the one exception. But by sure. and large, it's Israeli companies. And then mm-hmm. we, have, you know, we have companies that have retail in Europe and here in this place and that place and sell stuff all over the world. But again, it's, it's Israeli-based companies. It's Israel needs... You know, Israel needs the capital and right. to, to create and continue to expand. Um, it's what happened to Singapore. You know, Singapore had a capital come in and, and turned into you know this, this you know so had a similar startup like like sure. Israel with the, with the British mandate and, right. and so forth. Um, but that's 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 what it needs, and it's it's real. We say Israel is real. It is real. It is real. Right. Um, it's just if you can get over that fear factor, um, and and we as Jews we have this idea. Um, that that I, I was at a conference. I was at the the uh, Nas- National Federations of North America or the NFJ or whatever it is sure. Federation conference investment conference a couple of years ago, and they had a, a, a big name that most people have heard of get up and speak, and he made the comment of, um, you know, investing in Israel, you do that with your tzedakah, uh-huh. but if you want to make money, you don't do that, and and I can't be more opposed to that comment, you know. I just can't be any more opposed to that because you can do a better job with your money. Right. You can give it's better than Sadaka and you make money at it as well. Back back to the double bottom line. Sure. You know. Um it's it's right. What's the highest level of Sadaka? What's the highest level of charity is making somebody your partner. Right. You know, Correct. That that's the highest level. And it benefits you. That, yeah. that's, that's the that's the beauty of it. I, and I don't, I don't know whether that's something that we in North America are slow to relinquish. I think I've heard two interesting comments. I want to get back to the energy and what that will actually conclude. But I've heard two interesting comments. One is that with the growth of capital in Israel, there needs to be a lesson taught for the major money guys there how to be philanthropists, like they've been here. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be a pivot for the major philanthropists here to understand that Israel's not the little sisters of the poor anymore. Right. And there's a real partnership. Absolutely. Yeah. That relationship needs to mature. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Absolutely. it's your generation, my generation, that's going to have to make the, our generation, that's going to have to make that happen. And, and if we don't succeed in this, uh, we're going to have to make sure that our kids make that successful because it's not a relationship. This is not a relationship that can go on in this direction right. for that long. And there's been huge wealth generated in Israel. But not the same concept of philanthropy. Well, no, and, and it's generate it's 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 wealth generated by the, the classic oligarchy families. Right. It's, right. it's a small, you know, it's the small number getting extraordinarily wealthy. Right. But it hasn't really dissipated to the to right. more of the people. That hasn't really trickled down yet. I don't know if there's like an really. upper middle class, like you know, sort of as this is has has become here. The the last question I wanted to pepper you with, if possible, you mentioned noble energy. Do you believe? With sort of this new, everybody's excited about tech, everybody's excited about these other things. Do you believe with some of these energy findings that they found here that there are going to be some real players in the, the global energy market? Or do you think it's going to be limited to one or two opportunities? No, I mean, there was a deal just signed with Noble, just signed with Jordan, $15 mm-hmm. billion dollars, um, to provide by uh, Jordan Energy. I, I, tech's wonderful, but, but I'll tell you, even here in the United States, I, I think one of the ways out of this mess that we have with our not so friendly neighbors uh, in Israel is, is energy independence and, right and and uh, whether it's uh, what we do here in the United States or what Israel does there I think uh, I think that's a huge huge component because uh, if nobody's buying the Arab countries oil because they don't need it sure uh, funding for terror drives up 
Right. You know, and, right. and funding for all those problems that we have dry up. So it's... It's becomes a game changer. Yeah. It's well, a, look at the Ukraine. The Ukraine, almost all of that could have been solved if there was a way for them to access power without Russia. Right. 100%. Right. I think that's that's fascinating. I, I just want to, first of all, thank you, Andy, for joining us. Um, it's, it's For me, it's fun to be back in Denver and to talk to, to the people I've watched and admired for, you know, as I was growing up. And, and, and watching Peyton Manning. But that was not a terrible thing also to have right. an opportunity to watch, uh, to watch uh, the Broncos. I've been mum about that a little bit since uh, a little bit of my hype on the show pre the Super Bowl. People know how that worked out, so I've been trying to keep low-key, frankly. But uh, but uh, Andy's been a guest here on Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, I'm your host, Arya Lightstone. Uh, you've been listening to us on NachumSiegel.com. We're proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera. More than just a camera store, please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. I just want to make sure everybody who's been listening takes an opportunity to write down the webpage once more of www.israelinvestmentadvisors.com. You can certainly reach Andy via the contact tab, the top right of that page. If you give money to endowments, if you've been asked to give money to endowments, if you run endowments, that, that statistic blew me away. And to me is just lack of efficiency, lack of accountability in being able to do that correctly. And I, I, I don't believe I'm speaking out of turn to be able to have you on if we're able to educate one endowment. Absolutely. And to be able to get involved, I think that's exciting. Right. And it is starting to happen, but it's very slow. Sure. And they're slow to pull the trigger. But it's if you think about it, it's a, it's a real it's a real crime or shanda right. that these Jewish endowments actually have more money in Arab countries than they do in Israel. It's, 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 it's because of their index. Sure. Yeah. That's an interesting expose. We don't break a lot of news here on Tech Talk, frankly. But I think this is something that I'm going to look a little bit further into. Uh, we, we look forward. I think we're right now in September. Um, I'd very much like to sort of see where we're at and how you view Israel coming out maybe around the first of the year, and we'll get an update on the fund and, sure. and see where we're at. Maybe we'll be opening up funds two and three by then. Maybe so. We hope so. Definitely. Please, God. Thank, All right. you. Thank, Thank you. you so Thanks, much, Andy. Andy. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Appreciate you, your time. You too. Thank you. Hello and welcome back. You are listening to Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am your host, Arya Lightstone. We are here in our second season Third episode, broadcasting live from Denver, Colorado. You're listening to us on NachumSiegel.com. As always, we are very proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera. I'll tell you, we just had a bar mitzvah gift emergency. Was wondering what to get, and we went straight to Adorama.com, solved that emergency. Bar Mitzvah Boy was thrilled. So you can check them out at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. They do ship to Denver. That is pretty cool. So we're sitting here in Denver, Colorado, and I'm sitting here with somebody for whom I've admired uh, for a long time, had the opportunity to watch him grow in his career, and to me, he represents a segment of our industry that is long unheralded, um, and not only that, perhaps not necessarily understood, but to me is a essential component of what makes things actually happen. Um, so without any further ado, I want to welcome a friend, um, and I'd like to call him a colleague. We don't actually work on anything together, but uh, a guy who I admire collegially, so I, I've completely and totally lost that train of thought there. But I'd like to welcome Aaron Siegel to our show th- uh, today, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate that. You know, we get to go to Denver, so it's an opportunity to go ahead and visit some talent that we wouldn't normally be able to access in the rural confines of New York City. So we're excited to be here. And uh, Aaron, your current position is as a business analyst at a company called CoBank. CoBank provides, as I understand it, financial services for rural America. That is correct. And your primary job at CoBank is to serve as the liaison, is the incorrect word. You're going to tell me what the correct word is in a moment, but as the central switch in between the finances division and the IT division in order to make sure that you're able to accomplish problem solving for both of those divisions. That's correct. Yeah, my my primary... uh goal and, and objective in my position is to work with the finance division um, and develop business process improvements and in any technology projects um, work hand-in-hand hand with both the business side, uh, the subject matter experts, as, long, as well as with the IT, the technology groups, the developers, the project managers, um, as they need to make sure that we meet 
uh, the goals and objectives that the business set out in whatever project we're working on. Cool. So we have here on Tech Talk, we do spend an inordinate amount of time sort of focusing on some what I would call social new technology stuff that you might look at and say, aha, that's pretty awesome. I guess Google Glass would have been one of our things, WhatsApp, when that sold for that ridiculous amount of money. Waze, which I think we all like Waze. That, that, that pretty much has been one of the most popular things that we've spoken about. And we talk about different things like that. But the vast majority of technologies that I think that enhance our economy and make things run better are things that the average, quote-unquote, civilian on the street doesn't necessarily see. Sure, absolutely. So as part of our business process, I mean, the, the technology that we're developing, at least for my division, is something that's rarely customer interfacing. Um, there are a handful that, that serve uh, the bank's customers, but primarily it's, it's internal to make our business processes more efficient, to automate processes, um, and to, to help streamline what we do on a daily basis. Um, it, it's, it's pretty integral to, to the operational efficiency to be able to have you know, technology that, that allows you to accomplish something in, let's say, five minutes that manually would take an hour. Good. So you actually anticipated my question, which is disappointing for me, frankly. But uh, but let me let me say it a little bit differently, so I can still have the opportunity to ask questions. My show, Aaron. Absolutely. That <laughs> that uh, you know, for as long as I've known you and your reputation in the business world as somebody who can get things done, and whether you're the person who's actively getting them done or you're enabling others to work together and to be able to see both sides of the coin in order to accomplish that, that's really a phenomenal trait to be able to have. And I think one that's an important linchpin in the growing success of any any business. And I think those in our audience who don't understand or value that, I think you're seriously, we are seriously uh, mistaking where that talent lies. But I really want to ask you the question a little bit different. Let's assume a company like yours with the technology of five years ago, but the same quality HR and the same quality talent in the field and the same quality product that you're offering, competing with an inferior company, although marginally, with today's talent and te- with today's technology, are you competitive with them? You know, it probably depends. I mean, you know, with internally with our, within our company itself, um, you know, we're, we're not necessarily uh, uh, ahead of the curve in terms of technology, but we're not necessarily behind the curve either. So it's it's really within each company, it's it's them achieving the balance that's right for them, both from a user side, from a technology side, um, is how much risk you're willing to put out there. Um, if you're developing new products or whether you're trying to go ahead and use some of the most advanced technology. Um, so, you know, I, I guess in many ways it depends on, on what the risk appetite and how, how much of a willingness you are to take on new technology. So define for our audience, because a lot of people say without the new technology, you're going to miss out. You're really saying from a different component from the risk. What, what's the risk on, in investing this new technology? What's the risk in being at that cutting edge? Sure. So, you know, if you don't have the um, developers or the technology um, resources to be able to support some of that new greatest and best technology um, that, you know, say Microsoft or Google or somebody else is coming out with, then you're taking on a fair amount of risk that you can't support and maintain it and be able to run your business efficiently. Um, so really, it's you know within an IT department. I can't necessarily speak for my my company because you know I'm not in the IT group itself. Right. Um, but you know you have to weigh what what can you support, what can you develop, and what can you maintain that will meet the needs of your business and and your and your customers, which at least in in many internal companies is the internal business itself not necessarily the customers that are procuring your services. Uh, it's so interesting. So where many guests will come on our show and say, tech, 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 push, 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 you got to get to, you, you got to be the cutting edge. You got to be on the other side of that edge. You're saying that from an internal business perspective, which has to be, frankly, I don't want to speak out of turn. I'd be curious what the numbers would be in terms of investment on internal IT versus customer-based IT. That maybe. We'll do that preparation for a future show. But you're saying that each business really has to evaluate where they need to be and to make those decisions on advancing and, and maybe even retreating appropriately for each business. Sure, absolutely. You know, um, coming from a tech, uh, consulting background in technology as well, you know, you, as a, when, you're, when you're developing your, your technology plan, if you will, for a roadmap for your company, you have to weigh, you know, can I support my own data center? Um, is that something that you know we have the technology and the resources to do? Um, is it going out and 
getting the latest and greatest open source um, tools versus relying on Microsoft or something or another um, kind of more standard code base. You know, okay, that's so the risk that you have and then decisions that you have to weigh. So for our audience, I, you threw out a couple terms I'd love for you just to define. I don't think we need sure. to drill too deeply on it, but open source, which is something we've heard in terms of learning management systems and educational software, and I'm positive we didn't do a good enough job defining it at that point in time. And then you're talking about some of these prepackaged things, I guess, from Microsoft and Correct. Google, and then you threw out a th third concept of other types of coding things. Can you sort of walk through what that means sure, to, a, a, to a regular company? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, from a code base per code development perspective, you know, kind of one of the standards within the industry is Microsoft Team Foundation Server. Um, other opportunity, you know, other code code bases that are out there or, or open source, um, which, you know, is basically, you know, user maintained, user developed um, in an open forum um, that people can contribute to um, and that it depends on the adoption level of the company. Um, from a from a from a data source or a data a data hub data center perspective, you know, it's whether are you going to um, run your own servers or outsource that to another company. Interesting. And these are all evaluative decisions that each company needs to make based upon ultimately, I guess, its return to its shareholders or its owners, but really where the company envisions itself today, tomorrow, and and I don't know what it what is the life cycle for planning an IT plan? You're looking at a year, you're looking at five years, how are you, how are you doing that? Um, you know, it probably really, ultimately really depends on the on the business. Um, you know, personally, I'm not necessarily involved in that in my in my company, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, it's it's probably for sure developing a, a one-year roadmap, a five-year roadmap, a 10-year roadmap of what do you really want to do? Um, you know, both, both on, you know, the technology that you own, the technology that you want to purchase, um, and, and what route you need to go on. So I'm going to take you out of the CoBank employee uh, personality for one moment. Cause sure. I, and I wouldn't ask you to comment on a company that you're currently working for, and by all accounts it's doing very, very well, which is exciting. But tell me from your consultancy hat, um, companies and their embrace or lack thereof of technology, um, if there's a company that, that feels that it wants to get more advanced in terms of technology integration, growth, whatever else it would be. Uh, a, are companies normally equipped to handle that internally? And I know it depends on sort of the, 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 the company, but in your experience uh, for the companies who have gone out for the consultants, how, how does a company even begin to make those decisions appropriately? That's a very broad-based question. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the first step really is identifying what, what is your business issue and how are you going to solve that? You know, is that truly through... Um, just purely software development or technology development or, or re-engineering. Um, there's likely some sort of business process change or business process management that's going to be involved in that. Um, so it's really upfront going going after what's our scope, what are our, our obje objectives, and then defining those requirements um, at least at a at a high level enough to be able to submit um, or create some sort of request for proposal. Um, that an outside company could bid on. Um, one piece that's part of that is also identifying, you know, can can we as a company handle that internally, or do we have to go out and, and outsource that to a consultant? Okay, but one shouldn't think as uh, there are companies out there that are thriving and trying to figure out how to get to the next level, and I'm sure there are companies out there that are struggling trying to figure out how to thrive or maybe even survive. And you sort of hear around the table or wherever the conversation is taking place, maybe the golf course, that, oh, if you only had this technology, you're saying don't. that's not how these decisions should be made. The decision should be made of what does the company need and then where does technology fit into that. Correct. You know, ultimately, um, technology shouldn't necessarily lead the way. Um, in my experience, it's really what does the business need. Uh, and, you know, part of that is, you know, my perspective as a business analyst saying mm -hmm. that, you know, ultimately the business should be the driver of it. Sure, technology drives some change, you know, whether it's a, a refresh or an upgrade. Um, but ultimately, if you have a business problem that you need some sort of solution to, technology is, is a great way to do that. Um, but it's not always the end all and be all. Um, there's some process management change that has to be involved. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's defining what that solution is to meet your business need. This has been a very healthy show so far from the value of perspective. We've learned so far on Tech Talk today with Arye Lightstone on the Nachum Siegel Network. 
Uh, you're listening to us on NachumSiegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. I'd be remiss if I didn't have my once-a-week reminder to download our Nachum Siegel app. You can do that in the Google Play Store or in the iTunes Store. It really will enhance your listening ability and give you an opportunity to connect with um, some of our special guests like Aaron Siegel, um, who is at CoBank today, has a vast experience as a... Uh, as a um, consultant and integrating technology and, and more than integrating technology is really interfacing in between different units or divisions of companies and figuring out how they can speak each other's language. I'll tell you, I actually needed you earlier this week in a different project. It was as though myself and this other guy were, were, were saying the same words, but there was clearly a disconnect. Um, so let's speak about that for a moment. I think a lot of people have that in technology. A lot of people have that in integrating anything new into a company. What's your first approach as being one of those guys who's supposed to solve the problems? How, how do you how do you begin to get people to speak the same language or at least mean what the other guy means? Sure. So you said earlier that uh, liaison wasn't necessarily the right word, but although I, I think I would use that word myself, that, that it really is a, a key component of what I do. Um, you know, it's ultimately taking... Um, the business knowledge that I've gleaned from my subject matter experts within the, you know, in, the, in my current position in the finance division, um, and working with them to gain consensus on what truly is their business need, um, what are some risks that are involved, what are some of the um, most necessary pieces of, of the objective or the scope, what are some things that are nice to have, and it's it's compiling all that information and taking that to the group of stakeholders, which is going to be not only the subject matter experts, but the sponsors of the project, so maybe the controller or the CFO, um, as well as the technology and maybe any other customers um, that are involved in the project. So it's ultimately it's it's a lot of gaining consensus and it's discussion of, you know, what is this issue versus that issue. Um, you know, as you remarked, you know, maybe we have. Um, Maybe we're saying both saying the same thing, or two other people are saying the same thing, but they can't quite get to the same page. So it's working to gain consensus and, and communicate, um, of you know, and laying out what what is the issue or what is the requirement that we're trying to address, and and how could we solution for it, and trying to get everybody onto the same page. It's a lot of discussion. Would a better uh, definition have been marriage counselor for business? I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> sometimes, yes, absolutely. So, some, sometimes it, it is that way. You know, I, I, not to digress too far on my uh, off-the-cuff uh, analogy, but, you know, maybe there are words. I, I know that, you know, in, in counseling or speaking to young men and women getting married, you know, there are certain things that teach people to fight fair. People fight. It's a company. They, they discuss. They, they argue whatever else it would be, but there's a way to do it so we're moving towards a common goal as opposed to the, there's a way to do it so I can shop you down to size. Um, I don't know whether any of that actually comes into... into I, don't, I don't know how heated or contentious some of your projects wind up getting. It, it could be. You never know. I mean, if somebody has a very strong opinion, absolutely, but ultimately, you know, ideally you're, you're going for the same goal of consensus and how do you get there? And, and the in many ways, it's through discussion, and it's saying, you know, getting somebody off of their their soapbox necessarily that says, you know, maybe you're right, but here's some reasons that you may be wrong, or if you are right and you are on your soapbox, how do we convince the others? Ah, interesting. So this this is a, a terrifying question for me because Aaron, you and I have been, you know, peers for a long time, friends indeed for a long time. And I remember that we used to ask questions like this to people 10, 15, maybe 20 years older than us. You've seen several cycles of the economy. And now I'm asking you, you've seen several cycles of the economy, and that's just scary to be able to say that sentence out loud. Uh, but from your job as you know, a problem solver extraordinaire, is there a time that you, every cycle has problems that need to be solved? I get that. Sure. Is there a cycle that you enjoy working through, ignoring the macro? You know, everything in theory is better today than it was five years ago. And five years ago, it seemed like everything else was falling apart. But from a very specific drilling down to the emphasis on your position, getting those problems done, is there a something that you've either learned from either of those experiences or have enjoyed more from those experiences or you can take from one and, and apply it to the other? So there's a couple. One would be, um, you know, in technology, you always have failures, right? You always, the, the things that make it into the newspaper or make it in the headlines are always the failures. And, you know, ultimately it's it's learning from those. 
um, part of being a business analyst or being in a project management is looking back on what you've done, um, whether you're midstream on a project or you've or you've finished the project, and learning those lessons, which I think you can apply to anything you, that you do in life. Um, but particularly in, in projects, it's learning what did we do well and what did we not do well. And the things that we didn't do well, okay, well, how can we fix them to make them do them better? Um, and for the things that we did do well, let's learn from them. Let's bring those to other projects um, and move forward. So, um, you know, in terms of, you know, economic cycles, I, you know, it's hard to answer that question. I mean, right. I think in many ways it's very dependent on, you know, personal situation versus, you know, company situation. Um, but ultimately, just in terms of cycles and in terms of a project, um, you know, success is always wonderful. But you know, even where things don't go well, um, and you and you accomplish something, and if even if there are issues, you, that there's things that you can learn from that and take away and move and and bring to you know your next engagement, your next project. Sure. And, and I wanted to. I'm not going to refocus that, but maybe I'm going to phrase the question differently. Look from from at least in the Jewish calendar year, we're sort of looking at a time of renewal and reevaluation. And sometimes it's easier to make significant changes for the better uh, when things are more challenging. When we're coasting along, um, sometimes it's more difficult to make some of the changes that need to be done. I mean, you look at any of, the, any of those great business books, um, you know, Why Businesses Fail or From Good to Great, etc. And you see that it's, it's, you know, sometimes when you have that pivotal moment, 2008 or, or whatever else it would be that and it doesn't need to be a macro it could be a micro within a company here was that moment that we went to had to change just in my mind the way i've envisioned your position which doesn't mean it actually is your position that that oftentimes you're sort of like the the wise and sage trying to make sure that that company doesn't fall off the cliff that they're running towards or that division or that project or the anything else like that so you know i don't know whether you've had experience in terms of that aha moment or that challenge moment that you found easier to get that change as opposed to, yeah, everything's going along very nicely and next thing you know, we have no idea that the, we wound up in this abyss. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that applies to really almost any project that you have. Um, you know, one of my key roles as a business analyst um, is to in many ways work hand-in-hand in hand with the project manager and understand, you know, where are we tracking on our project itself? Um, you know, are we going down a rabbit hole that we shouldn't be going down? Um, you know, part of it is working with the uh, technology group to say, you know, are, are we on the right path in terms of the development of the application or the technology solution that we're working on? And be able to say, you know, if we're not on the right path, stop. Let's reevaluate where we're at. Um, if we're not meeting our goals, you know, how do we change course to be able to meet those goals? Ah, uh, so it, it, it's a constant calibration and or recalibration in terms of where we go and I'd have to imagine correct me if I'm wrong that by being in the position that you're in you're able to make some of those decisions without that I don't want to say ego involved but but that it's my part of the project it's your job as you said from the the, the communicator the liaison to be able to make sure that the project has its benefit whether anybody is shepherding it or not Sure, absolutely. And it's, it's trusting yourself and, mm -hmm. you know, being able to say, hey, if I made a mistake, raise my hand and say, sorry, I made a mistake. You know, we need to do this instead of doing it X, Y, and Z, we need to do it A, B, C. And, you know, then we have to reevaluate what, what that is, whether that's in terms of resource cost or, or, uh, cost to, to another vendor or, or whatever the case may be. Frankly, that's apropos to this time of the year as well. Sometimes having the ability to raise your hand internally or externally and say, I made a mistake, now how am I going to deal with it? That's probably something we could all learn uh, wherever we're at and whatever season we happen to be. And I think that's a valuable a valuable thing to be in. And you have to be in a company where it's safe to be able to say that. Sure, and absolutely. And there's another element, which is trust. You know, it's not only trusting yourself, but trusting your colleagues to be able to say that, you know, I've laid out my component and be able mm -hmm. to trust my colleagues that they're going to hold up their end of the bargain so that we can accomplish our objectives on time and on budget. Yeah, we used to have, for some of the entrepreneurs that came in, one of the key words that they said was trust. And I think it's equally important. One shouldn't think it's just because it's you and you and that girl or you and that guy in the garage creating something from scratch, trying to make those last $3 stretch where you need to trust and, and believe in the person next to you. You could be in a multi-million, multi-billion dollar company and you're putting together something division by division. That trust is equally important. Absolutely. So that that that's that's an important thing. If you can, you know, to me, your position I think makes so much sense, and it's really interesting. I just don't know in my mind. I'm picturing an organizational chart 
where where does your type of position fit? To whom do you report? Who actually reports to you? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because you look at probably any organization, and it's going to depend. Okay. Um, you know, in my particular position, um, I report to a group within the controller who reports to the CFO. Um, within other companies, you have a core group of like an enterprise-wide group of business analysts, and you could typically maybe may find that in other consulting companies where all the business business analysts and or project managers report within one group, um, and then they're dispersed based off of the projects and their um, and their kind of knowledge base or their subject matter expertise. Um, so in many ways, it depends on you know how the, the organization is structured and the appetite for um, kind of defining those key roles for a business analyst or a project manager and where they report in the organization. See, I'm, I'm picturing these business analysts having like their own break room where they sort of like discuss all those things. They're like, I think like that's a cool group of guys and gals who probably have an opportunity to come back. I'm sure it's actually nothing like that. But I, that's, that's sort of in my mind how I'm picturing this right now. Sure. Well, you know, there's there's organizations um, in the marketplace such as IIBA, um, which is the International Institute for Business Analysis, um, which which has developed um, a ton of content out in the marketplace. Um, the Business Al- Analyst Book of Knowledge, which is ma- mainly a guide for kind of the practice, the practicum for business analysis. Um, within project management, you have the Project Management Institute, um, which again, very similar. Um, and both of these organizations have certifications um, that you could uh, apply for and, and take a test um, to achieve. Do either of them come with secret handshakes? Not that I know of. Okay. That's, I mean, it just, to, again, to, to me, you know, I, I don't know why this, this industry speaks to me, you know, very personally. I think it's, it's sort of like addressing problems, solving problems, getting things done. And, and figuring out how to do that in different environments, different economies, different personalities, different – it's I, – I, I don't know. To me, it just seems like a very fun and interesting uh, type of industry to be a part of. Um, is there a size company that, without a doubt, if you're ab- above this, either in people or divisions or money that you're coming in, you should certainly have an internal business analyst? Is, is there a litmus test for that? Um, personally, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I think there's probably definitely been you know, research articles um, written on that topic. Um, but, you know, it's it's ultimately looking at, at least from a business analysis perspective, of how can I make my processes better, um, whether that's some sort of internal change management group um, and being able to say, you know, if we did this, then we would achieve some sort of ROI, uh, return on investment, based off of whatever metrics you're coming up with or some other key performance indicators. Um, so it's not a good answer. No, <laughs> it's, it's a, a, it's a, a fine answer. De- it's a very dependent answer. Um, you did have a yeah. career in consulting. Yes, exactly. yeah, so Okay, everything is. So I, 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 first of all, I want to remind everybody that you're listening to Tech Talk here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Arya Lightstone. You're listening to us on NachumSiegel.com. As always, we are proud to be sponsored by our friends at Adorama Camera, more than just a camera store. Please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. This has been a really exciting show. To me, there's something interesting and being able to to see things outside of the New York cocoon. Um, this position industry that you're talking about, and, and Aaron Siegel has been our guest uh, for this segment of the show. Aaron, can you leave our guests with the following thing? There, are, I'm, I'm convinced our listeners out there who weren't aware of this industry before this show started, who are now thinking, aha, I've been looking for a career pivot anyways, and this speaks to me. Or students, and we get a lot of uh, late high school and, and, and college kids sort of looking for their next thing. How does one further their their knowledge in this particular regard to see if this is for them? You know, one way is um, kind of the two the two uh, organizations I mentioned. Again, there are there are only two out there, mm-hmm. um, but Project Management Institute and IIBA um, both have a wealth of of research articles and books and and other information that can give you more information about the industry and the practice itself. Um, another and I'll tweet out if you're not following me, follow me at Lightstone A. I'll tweet out both of those sometime during the, the week, and you'll be able to see the links to those sites a little bit later. Um, other ways is, I mean, it's kind of it's really networking. Um, you know, how I got my start in this career path is through networking um, and working, you know, different jobs, different internships through high school and college, and it was something that really spoke to me. Um, and 
therefore it was something that I wanted to pursue. Well, we appreciate that. We admire passion and enthusiasm that that people have in their career, and I think those of us who who know people who don't have that are are, are jealous on their behalf of the people who do. I think it's exciting to. Uh, wake up and be excited to go to work and what you do sounds very exciting very interesting I hope maybe uh, halfway through the year we can check back in and maybe talk about some specific projects and implementations and things like that but uh, Aaron Aaron Siegel we'd like to thank you for joining us uh, on this week's episode of Tech Talk thank you for joining us thank you appreciate it thank you everybody for listening you've listened to another exciting episode here on Tech Talk on the Nachum Siegel Network you listen to NachumSiegel.com thank you to our sponsors and our dear friends at Adorama Camera more than just a camera store please check them out online at Adorama.com or visit them in person at 42 West 18th Street. Until next time, have a great week.